Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Team Human is an ad-free, listener-supported community project. People always ask me, how can I join Team Human? And I usually tell them, if you're alive, you're already on Team Human. Just go find the others. But if you want to get some skin in the game, I encourage you to go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to join teammates like Hannah Reese, TBC, Alan, Elmura, Ted Shulman, and Michael Cunningham, who've become supporting members and gained access to our Discord channel, our Team Human spatial audio lounge where we hold impromptu salons with recent guests, including one this coming Friday, September 3rd at 5 p.m. Eastern Time with Dr. Sarah Pesson, whose episode aired last week. You'll also get free admission to the upcoming Unfinished Live Conference at The Shed in New York City on September 23rd and 4th, where I'll be recording a Team Human Live, but you can also participate there with some really interesting folks from around the world for two whole days, and that's worth 200 bucks right there. Of course, you also get access to our Team Human team feed with bonus content, including conversations I've had over the years with legendary Team Human pioneers, including Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, Joanna Harcourt-Smith, Nina Graboy, Genesis Breyer-Piorage, and many, many others others. You can also get all sorts of things, books, t-shirts, and the knowledge that you're keeping a roof over our editor's head. So join Team Human, gain access to our shared dream space every night during your sleep. See you there. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine, an opportunity to transcend the categories into which we're placed and celebrate both the commonalities among us and the differences between us. Let's make contact sexy again. It's worth a shot while we're still here and breathing. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Are you? 
playing for Team Human today, spiritual innovator, rogue thinker, and seventh generation rabbi, my true haver, Erwin Kula. Nothing is sacred is the most powerful thing you can say. It's very new for us as human beings, and we're at the cutting edge of it. Erwin and I are going to go on a spiritual journey through the desert, and we may just find the strength to stay there in the in-between. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. The most common email I'm getting these days is from people asking about one token or blockchain or another, and whether this one is the one that's going to save the world and make them rich. And of course, it's always both of those things at the same time. And I write articles, you know, recently I wrote a couple of pieces on Bitcoin and blockchain, and all the emails and tweets and things that come back are always like, how could you be so down on the blockchain? You know, what about NFTs that are saving artists or decentralized autonomous corporations that are, you know, saving gig workers and aren't Bitcoin and Ethereum doing all sorts of great things, letting people get paid that couldn't get paid before? I mean, and and yes, in some few cases they are, but I'm not so sure that all those good things are really the primary concern of a majority of people who are involved with these tokens, or more important, that they even represent a substantial enough portion of the activity and impact of blockchains to outweigh all the icky ones. Now, I'm not going to try to tell the whole story of of Bitcoin and its successes and failures right here, but I can say that that when you do an overview of how they work, you know, these technologies, they're not necessarily intrinsically any more distributed or egalitarian than their predecessors were. And if we do want them to be, then we're going to have to make a very conscious choice to use these technologies differently than we are right now. You know, so far, there's a few new players among the bankers and currency traders, but they're doing pretty much the same activities that the bankers and currency traders did before. You know, I see a bunch of people who may have found out about blockchain when they were doing, you know, Occupy or Anonymous or something cool, but now I look at them and they're sitting there with, with you know, Three screen terminals, just like the, the people who used to have Bloomberg terminals to, to trade stocks. Now they've got their, you know, their Coinbase or, or uh, Hotbit terminals to trade tokens and to stake tokens or to do proof of work with mining or proof of stake with money. And so all of the same extractive dynamics, they're really still at work. You know, we are going to just use digital coins to to amplify traditional capitalism unless we summon the courage and the deliberateness to try something else. And I am not saying this as some cynical outsider, you know, but as an OG crypto anarchist fanboy from from the 80s. I don't suffer from too low an opinion of blockchains, but maybe from too idealistic a set of expectations. We were, me and my friends, we were talking about PGP and Tor-style networks uh, and how we could apply those technologies to decentralized currency since the early 90s. You know, Bitcoin was really just the first white paper to come out outlining a complete solution to the stuff we were talking about for 
a decade or two. And even then, it really only turned into a, a true widespread movement after Occupy Wall Street. You know, that's when Bitcoin sort of rose to prominence almost as a form of tech support for the circular economic systems that the activists were talking about in Zuccotti. Now, everyone seemed to understand that, that money itself had become too expensive. There were too many financiers trying to make money off everybody else's money, off everybody's transactions. Right? That's central currency. You lend money into existence, you get a fee back as interest, and then the economy has to grow in order to pay all that interest. And that's what led to the exacerbating divisions in wealth and also the demand that we have a growth-based economy that then in turn destroys the environment. So our economy became this tail wagging the dog situation with all these businesses trying to serve the financial system rather than a financial system trying to serve businesses. And, and the World Bank and the open markets and all that was all part of this one uh, unidirectional extractive weight on uh, on commerce, which, which could be a great peer-to-peer -peer thing. And we were thinking, if only there was some way to, to verify transactions that didn't involve these extractive, greedy central banks, then we could start using money as an inexpensive utility and optimize it for velocity and transaction instead of growth and extraction. And the blockchain, you know, it didn't completely fail in that respect. You, you look at the way it's being used in Africa and India, among really among the world's poor, and you start to see, oh, that's how a little bit of peer-to-peer -peer exchange can work. And yes, I understand that those transactions depend in part on people feeling like Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever it is, is valuable. And that requires speculators to some extent who, who are, you know, spending all these terawatts of electricity in order to, to kind of burn this huge, you know, funeral pyre to Bitcoin. You know, it's as if we, we pray to Bitcoin in the form of processing cycles and electricity expenditure. You know, if, if we weren't, you know, burning the planet in, <laughs> in Bitcoin and Ethereum's name, then it would have no value. That's called proof of work. You know, imagine what Marx would have thought of that phrase, right? Proof of work. What makes money valuable? Proof of work. It's like, wait, Again, uh, the shoes on the other foot. We're not working in order to get anything done. We are working purely to show the value of the currency. You know, and then the other kind they have is proof of stake. And proof of stake means whoever has the most of the coin gets to verify the transactions. So what does that mean? The rich, right? So the wealthiest among us get to say what's real. That's the problem that we're trying to get away from. You know, and there's exceptions to all of this, but but really I'm I'm looking at at all the 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 bright young people who've gotten involved in blockchain for all the great reasons who now basically they spend their time trading and speculating in the same way that Wall Street traders speculate on stocks they're not creating any value they're sitting behind terminals moving things around that are meaningless 
you know, there are some good stuff happening. There's, there's, you know, I, I like the Twitch app, which is like Twitter, but, you know, based on a coin and, and you get kind of uh, paid, essentially, for popular popular tweets or the Brave browser, which is trying to reward people for attention, you know, rather than just to extract value for their, for their data or Streamanity, which is kind of like a YouTube that you can do little tips and things. And if it can lead to different outcomes for creators rather than the power law dynamics and you know, winner takes all stuff that happens in the regular net, that would be great. You know, and and NFTs, you know, NFTs, I wished they were more, they were better than they were. You know, we're, we're looking at them like they're the new killer app for the blockchain, that there's this kind of crypto utility that, that seems to make sense to people. And it can serve as this clear example of token profits doing something good for the world, right? Saving the artists. Thanks to NFTs, digital artists whose work was always replicable and undervalued, well, they now have a way to sell the exclusive ownership of a digital file. Well, not really the ownership, but but a pointer to a digital file and, and the bragging rights, you know, that they can sell that to just one person. So a creator, like a creator I love, like Matt Fury, who did Pepe the Frog, and had his little frog mercilessly co-opted by the alt-right. Now he's got a way of making some money off the character's mimetic spread by selling NFTs. And he's making a few million dollars now. And God bless, that's a good thing. But very, very few people make real money off their NFTs. You know, it's a bit as proof of blockchain working. It's a bit like using, you know, the example of... um, the Romans used to hold this lottery during the Colosseum events through which one lucky slave of all the thousands who were there would be granted his freedom. You know, so now a few big news stories about Mike Winkleman or Three Lyle or somebody making millions off their gifts, they're supposed to grant this halo to the greater blockchain pyramid scheme when all we're really looking at is what happens when trillions of dollars are pumped into the economy through emergency COVID-19 cash infusions. Crypto is serving as a sponge for all that money, just like the luxury apartments in New York and the 35,000-point Dow Jones Industrial Stock Average. What do we do with all the inflated tokens? Well, we can invest, you know, and buy NFTs with blockchain profits. It's a bit like a bank buying some art for its lobby. Look what good we can do with our money. We're supporting Frank Stella. You know, and of course, the art itself is just a teeny bit of the bank's art investments, which are purchased less for love of culture than as some alternative asset class they think is going to go up in value. You know, unless NFTs are being issued by artists to really tweak collector sensibilities like Andy Warhol used to do, auctioning off silk screens of soup cans, I don't think they really rise above the, the crass profiteering that already characterizes so much of the art scene. And I, and I can't help but suspect a lot of people are going to end up holding the digital equivalents of, of Beanie Babies. And yes, those crashed too. And in spite of all this, I actually, I still do hold out hope that blockchains can someday retrieve their higher purpose. And that's not to reify extractive speculative capitalism, but to replace it with distributed superfluid economic potentials. No transaction should ever be blocked for lack of currency through which to enact it. Our marketplaces should never be in service to its financial utility 
utilities or to the people monopolizing them. Nor, nor should the metrics of economic health be based on the requirement of capital to grow. So cryptocurrencies and blockchains, they don't have to be these kind of lightly camouflaged trailheads for some new generation of would-be reformers to become currency traders and brokers. They can instead aspire to develop a genuinely peer-to-peer protocol-based distributed database like Holochain or, or true communities as concerned with distributed governance as the distribution of value, like the R-Chain Cooperative, or they can expand on, on, on George Blumrit's work using blockchains to distribute aid to refugees or promote liquid democracy. So no, Bitcoin and the many blockchains it inspired, they don't necessarily have to become just another asset class. And its developers and supporters, they don't have to turn into the next generation of securities traders. But man, I'd sure feel a lot better if they stopped acting like it. It's such a delight to have an excuse to spend an hour with one of my great friends and co-mentors, the radically wise and equally fun Erwin Kula. My conversations with Erwin are part of what made me want to do this show in the first place. He's the author of Yearnings, Embracing the Sacred Messiness of Life, and co-president of CLAL, that's C-L-A-L, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, which sounds formal, but it's really an incubator for making Jewish a public good. This one is a good trip. So hi, Erwin. It's so good to have you here. You're like certainly one of the original inspirations for Team Human is, you know, one of the humans who's actually on this team. And usually, oddly enough, usually when I do a Team Human interview, I prepare and I get all these notes and I think about different things. For you, not only is that impossible, but I thought it'd be such a beautiful thing as an act of faith in humanity itself, an act of faith that when human beings come together in the name of a, of a higher purpose, that the, the spirit will, will emerge between them. So I'm off-road with you. I'm with you on that. You know, it's, <laughs> it isn't the definition of team human. I mean, I followed you since, since before you knew me, I followed you. And, and our journey is, you know, ha- has so many twists and turns, but we have to figure out how to make it relational, right? Right. I'm all for technological solutions. I'm okay. I get it. From fire to glasses, I'm into technological solutions. But in the end, it has to be relational. And if it's not relational, that doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean we don't hurt each other. But like, it has to be relational. And, and that's the faith. The faith isn't some God in the sky, but faith and trust in Team Human. I mean, that's the point. I know. And it's like, you know, we both come from uh, uh, Jewish parents. That's almost the easiest way to <laughs> encapsulate the whole thing, because I don't want to get into religion and isms aren't really. We both come from Jewish parents, which says so much about my understanding of Judaism. <laughs> but part of it was always for me, I mean, and really the inspiration for Team Human came from Torah, which is that one 
moment in Sinai that I always love where they're all busily trying to make the ark and sewing all the little things and they just love worshiping, right? Because they came from Egypt and they're building it all and they finally build their ark, but they don't put anything on top. They don't put the God, you know, whatever, Atem or Achich or whatever up there. They put these two little cherubs, what well, big cherubs on either side with an empty space between them. Facing each other. Right. Facing, Facing each, each other. other. Right. And then on top of that, right, our traditions say, and you can't see God face to face. So it's like the whole thing is just one giant, I mean, it's almost like a, a healthy mind fuck that is saying, look, yearn for the infinite, yearn for the infinite, yearn for the infinite, and celebrate the finite, celebrate the finite. And what does it mean to celebrate the finite? Look into other people's face. It's really, really hard. Most of the time, you're going to want to look away. It's really, really hard. Try a little harder. Don't compare yourself to someone else. Compare yourself to yourself yesterday. Do it a billionth of percentage, and that's the drama. Right. But that's, you know, it's funny because that's that's the hardest, hardest thing is just to both realistically, even in the simplest way and metaphorically, to look at someone else in the face, to just look at them in the face. It's like, no, it's not that you want to have them or have sex with them or own them or get them to do something. Just encounter the, just be with another person. And we've got, so we've built so much tech um, in the name of connectivity that actually gets in the way of face-to-face -face contact. Right. It's like one big fake face we're staring into all day. And of course the joke is it's called Facebook. I mean, the whole thing is like, a, <laughs> the whole thing is a giant, like it, it, you couldn't make it up. If you had to make it up, you couldn't make up the story of what's going on because and I know this is going to sound some. I think all the yearnings part are really noble. And there's something about the disconnect between the yearnings and actually the way in which we're managing them. We know every, we know from the beginning of time, from the beginning of human beings writing up their stories from that first cave, that we, we try to be attentive to stuff. And we try to be attentive to other human beings. And, and when they die, we worry where they are. And, like, <laughs> and when they're alive, we worry where they are. And, and the first two questions of the, of the oldest traditions, the biblical traditions, are, hey, where are you? Like, you know, where are you? Because, like, I don't know exactly where you are because we're always on the move. And everything is a relation or a probability. And so we want to try to fix it and stabilize it. And, and, and where's, you know, your brother? Those are the only questions. So it turns out what's insidious about the technology, unfortunately, is I do believe it, it was hopeful in realizing, oh, here I am. Oh, there's my brother. Oh, my God. There's my brother. And, and they're 5,000 miles away and I can see them. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's so fucking amazing. It's like, oh, my God. Oh, inspiring. And it turns out, because this is how it is, it, it went to the lowest desires. We have to grow up. It's like... The technology is just stronger than us right now and more powerful. But, you know, we're going to have to grow up and, and, and evolve psychologically. And, and we're beginning to, I think, but it's hard. But it's tricky right now. And maybe right now is always right now. But right <laughs> now, it feels like there's so many crises going on. I mean, I remember when... Um, my daughter, when she was like three, she got her first sinus infection. And, you know, we're all holistic about our doctors. And, and we go, and it's like, all right, the doctor's like, all right, this time 
I'm going to have to give her the antibiotic. But in the meantime, we can do stuff so that the next time we won't have to do this. So it was always like there's the crisis when we have to do crisis management. And then there's all that long-term stuff you could do to not have another crisis. But I feel like when there's all these things to be afraid of now, you know, and COVID, I guess, is the one that people are afraid of right now. It's like, all right, so I'll order stuff on Amazon this year and I'll take lots of drugs and I'll do all this and I'll, you know, just try to make money on Bitcoin. I'll do all this stuff that I know is not good and stream lots of movies and not hang out with people. But I I almost wonder, is it ever not this? You know, maybe maybe this is it, that it's always going to be ratcheted up and critical. Well, it's all, that's the dance, right? The dance is you have a vision of a promised land and you're journeying and it's two steps forward and one step back. And sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back. And the issue is, yes, this is it. Right. From the moment you discover fire to the moment you discover consciousness to the moment. you Yes, this is it. But the question the question is, who are you in the it? So if you're in a moment in which, oh, my God, it feels like crisis, okay, you have a choice. You could say, yikes, I'm going to, like, you know, eat donuts all day and and escape from the crisis. Or, oh, my, crisis. You cannot have a crisis without there being opportunity because crisis doesn't exist consciously without opportunity consciously. They coexist. They co-create. The second you feel crisis, it's only because you have the psychological, psycho-spiritual experience of opportunity, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't feel. But the opportunity might only be to do hospice care. Here's the thing. That's okay, too. Then if your choice is hospice care, but it's bad faith, no pun implied, to do hospice care when you don't really believe it's hospice care. And there's a lot of people with power and influence and capacity that Use hospice care, use despair, use complexity, use, oh my God, too much crisis as a way of escaping what we can do at the moment. And that's all it is. It's like, I want it all and I have to always be satisfied with what I have. And right. unfortunately- Now. Now, well, of course, but, but, but holding the two together is what makes a sophisticated, flourishing human being. If you only have the side that says- Human beings are sinful. We should never really try to aspire to anything more than an incremental little step, right? You have one problem. If you have the the, the techno-utopians, which by the way, a techno-utopian is no different than a Christian salvific character. It's the same thing. Then you have a, a missing part of being human. Both sides are necessary in the system of being human, but for most of us, We are not on either side. We have to integrate the partial truths of both sides. But that's hard to do in a moment of paradigm shift because there's no, it's like all this solid melts in the air, as Mark says, you know, all that is sacred is made profane. So, or the nothing is sacred. Nothing is sacred is the most powerful thing you can say. It's very new for us as human beings. And we're at the cutting edge of it. Right. I always feel like people who get to participate in this in this team human project with me, not just on the show as guests, but as listeners, as participants in the Discord channels, whatever we happen to be going through psychologically, economically, we're also so privileged just to get to think and feel these thoughts and feelings. I mean, how many humans who've incarnated on earth get to go here. And you know what I mean? That should be enough. 
that's enough. That's worth the trip. Right. It's worth the price of admission just to get to experience an inkling, an iota. You know, like Vladimir, at the end of Waiting for Godot, he has this three seconds of insight, and then he goes, what have I said? What did I just say? It was worth it. And that's what we have to actually do up. In other words, what you just did, that 25-second you know, riff, tell me, where is that riff heard, right, in sort of the public space, okay? Because that riff is both honest to the crisis. You're not, it's not Pollyannish, there's no crisis. Millions of people are going to be hurt in this turbulent period. So it's not naive to the crisis. It's not naive to an entire generation will not get into the promised land. And at the same time, Right. Once you get into the promise thing, you realize it's not so promised. It has all the same problems as it has outside the promise. And feel incredibly grateful that at this evolutionary moment, it turns out after 250,000 years or 13.7 billion years, here's where we are. And we get, we, I mean, we get to, we get to do this, that for the first time, because of culture, we can begin to impact the evolutionary process. We're at the culture level that now, and it's very hard for us to grasp, we're affecting the nature level. Well, that's brand new. I mean, things that are brand new, you're going to stumble and fall. We're going to stumble and fall. But our job is to be 5149 optimistic or 5149 hopeful. Right. At the bottom of right. the Pandora's box is hope. We have opened up the Pandora's box. We're not putting anything back in the Pandora's box, but at the bottom of the box is hope. And that's not 9010, because that's bullshitting around, but 5149. Pandora's box. Well, the problem with the myth is that then the bad stuff's just going to keep happening forever. No, you open the Pandora's box and things can just get better. Right. I mean, talk to any therapist. You've got to go there. Right. And it calls to mind, and I'm, I'm not just saying this because you're a rabbi and we met along Jewish lines, but I'm thinking back to 9-11 and, you know, this terrible thing happened. Airplanes came and knocked down the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, and it was terrible. And all of New York was in shock and mourning, and there were clouds of toxic dust. And I remember, for no reason in particular, I happened to have tickets through a friend to the high holiday services. And it was to what's his name, the, the rabbi, uh, Peter Rubenstein Synagogue, Central Synagogue in in Midtown Manhattan. It's this reformed synagogue, big middle middle of the city. And I'm at the service, and it's the regular, straight up reform service of my youth. That big boring thing, and all those same words and prayers and stuff that seemed so irrelevant to me at the time. Right? We're reading through the texts I read at the Reformed Synagogue as a kid. And, and I'm looking at it, and it's all that stuff like, oh, God, protect us from this or that, from the armies of the Philistines or the dangers of this horrible stuff or that horrible stuff. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, oh, shit. This is what they were talking about, the bombing of the World Trade Center. This is the normal state of things. I was raised in a weird cushy little moment of history when we weren't under direct mortal threat from our neighbors or overlords. And now it's like, this is what they were talking about. This is what they were praying about. This is the normative state. But mixed in, in all of that God protect us, God save us stuff, is all of this thanks and 
praise and joy and sanctify this and sanctify that. They're celebrating in the midst of whatever might have been happening to them in those in the ancient or medieval times. Yeah, well, I think the very fact that you call a team human is saying there's something a little bit new about this moment. You know, it, it turns out if you spend 3,000 years in the Western tradition imagining a God who can see everything and can know your innermost thoughts, don't be surprised, sort of like the Jetsons, don't be surprised that at some point you'll create the tech, human technological capacity to know us better than we know ourselves. It's, it's, it, that's not, shouldn't surprise us. What is a little unnerving is, given that the God thing was an imagination thing, yes, that God knew us, but we also imagine that God loved us. And so being known by that God wasn't the worst thing. We mattered somewhat cosmically. It didn't matter so much. Turns out now, for the last 300 years, increasing numbers of people don't believe that right? But we've created the technological capacity to be that. And that's a weird moment. But that's always been the drama. How you gain power over whatever it is, is the external. And how do you match that with self-regulation? And self is not just little s self, but self-regulation, societal regulation. And regulation has a bad name now, but it's just a way, it's just a way of saying, oh, how do we hold the whole thing together without killing each other too much? Yeah, how we hold the whole thing together. Just contain it. Contain it so you don't fall off either side or into the gutter, into authoritarianism or totalitarianism. Don't just fuck everyone or kill everyone. There's exactly. a middle place. Exactly. And it takes, you know, it, at some, it, it does take, I think, here's where in the diffusion of innovation, you have the... The innovators, the the early adopters, the late adopters, the early followers, the late followers, and the laggards. And the fact is, you need all of them, right? Because they're all part of the same system. And the thing is to know, to try to be aware as much of who you are in that drama. Now, we're very good at applying that business-wise to technological innovation, so we know the inflection points and when we should invest, et cetera, et cetera. And you have your different VC kinds of people. Well, we need the same thing in psychological moral innovation. There are early moral adopters, and, and but you can't be an innovator in the moral drama and then have the same return on investment as you at the next stage. That's the point. There's greater risk in being the innovator. You can innovate something, die, and the innovation will make it post your death. So you have to like know who you are in the drama of sort of the psychological and moral imagination and innovation too. So I always say like, well, I'm okay with having like the great innovators. Who are the early moral, who are the moral innovators? The early moral innovators. Who are the early moral adopters? Who are the late moral adopters? And we don't judge. It's not about judge because you can only be who you can be. It's like I always say to the people who are so self-righteous about the incredible expansion of rights on the variety of LGBTQT in the last 30, 40 years. It's very, very nice. I appreciate it. We want it all. But we shouldn't be so self-righteous because if we were living 40 years ago, we wouldn't, we wouldn't even know about it. We wouldn't even take it seriously. So it's pacing more or less the sort of a moral imagination the pacing question and here's where if you're if you're sort of a, a moral imagination innovator it's very very important to look back and not be deeply respectful because you were there much earlier than you imagined and when they write the history of the period you'll barely be noticed given the time span that you got the idea 
I know, because it's really easy to condemn the people who came before for, for their blindness. But eventually that catches up with you. They may have once been a long time ago, but then it's the people of the last decade or the last year or last week. And that's us. We are the people who came before and had all those wrong ideas. It catches up with you. And then what do we have to do? Kill ourselves? No, we have to accept we were wrong. The people back there were wrong, but they were trying to move in the right direction. There's there's an patience to things. Everything must happen right now, right now. We want justice. We want justice now. And I get it. But we have to treat one another with the respect we all deserve. Right. And by the way, it's okay. I understand that impatience of the now is a sen- is also critical in the system. Wherever you are in a, in a drama of change, there's a different sort of anxiety or a different sort of Achilles heel or a different sort of deep, deep, profound psychic dissatisfaction, right? So if you're on the fast side of change and the now side of change, it turns out our sort of Achilles heel is it's not going fast enough. It's impatience. It's anger at the people who, quotation marks, don't get it as if we always got it, right? And, and that's our Achilles heel. Now, if you're a, a more traditionalist-minded person, I'm not saying here religious, just more traditionalist and or a little bit more cautious regarding change, your Achilles heel or your anxiety is always going to be, oh my God, what am I losing? What am I losing? So everybody sort of has to become more emotionally and psychologically and spiritually literate about the costs of our own positions. You know, we tend to always think we're right exactly where we are, but the only way we know where we are is in relation right, to other people. So it turns out the most important thing to know is there's always a cost to one's own position because one can't be everyone. And the more interesting thing then is to know, okay, do your drama, do your drama, do your drama, but don't freak out about your cost because that's the cost you incur for being that, having that portfolio of psychology, one might say. Instead, what's happening, and you were talking about Stuart Brand before and his long now concept, the different modes of time. But the other thing he was talking about was this immense explosion of human potential, all the things we can do from robots and computers to nano and genetic engineering. We have our hands on the dashboard of creation. And I remember he said, we are as gods and we might as well get good at it. And something has always bothered me about us assuming that mantle. Yeah, well, I I know you don't like it, but the the truth of it was, it turns out we become the gods we imagine, and then we have a choice. See, what he didn't do was, what does that really mean? It's not just a celebratory moment in the sort of techno-utopian way, oh, we become the gods, but it then becomes incumbent two things. One, invent new gods. (laughs) You must invent new gods, because otherwise you become the worst kind of God that you transcended, right? So you become the God who punishes. You become the God who manipulates. You become the God who lashes out in anger. You become the God who who you don't even know what the hell's happening with that God. So you have to both create and imagine new gods. And once you become a God, what's the one thing in every mystical tradition that God has to learn? God has to learn to contract, Right in mystical tradition, in the within Jewishism, we call it simtsum, but that doesn't matter. It's God has to restrain God's power and let your children make their own mistakes and let them, and also let them breathe. Right. So now the question is, 
as we develop this deep technological power, the AI, AGI, biotechnology, it's such a great, great, great. Our response to mastering the world should be yes. And then the second we say yes, we should take very seriously all the cautions and all the correctives on the hubris that comes from actually thinking you're God. And how to hold the two things together is the key. Can't let them split. The interesting thing about, amongst the many things, interesting thing about Team Human is look at the range of people, the guests of, you know, 165 guests or whatever it is, right? Think about the range of guests. If you put them on a wall, there would be no possible way, no possible way to create a taxonomy. Why? Because every single take, vantage point, insight, perspective needs to be brought to bear when you have an explosion of technological power. And that's what it means to be team human because it's not team technology, right? It's team human, but it turns out human collectively is the new God. And that's sort of, we need a network theology, one might say, or, or a relational theology. So it's all human beings together to the nth degree is what it means to connect to God now. You want to connect to God? People say, where's God? I'll tell you where God is. Find as many different ways of being human as possible. Be as curious. And I promise you, there will be breakthroughs of, oh my God. That was the original rave-like Grateful Dead parking lot ethos of the original internet. We were going to connect all the people and all the weirdness together into one organism. But... Over the past 20 years, instead of the internet becoming about all the connections between the people, it became about our connection to the cloud, this thing up there, this big AI thing in the cloud. We don't connect with other people. We log into the internet and interact with the algorithms up there in that thing that track us and manipulate us and whatever. But we're all doing it so alone, not even with each other. Yeah, I mean, look, that's every every historic moment has its drama. That's our drama in the cloud. I mean, you know, I mean, the cloud is such a funny thing, given that in the biblical tradition, the cloud is where God hung out, right? <laughs> right. So it's lack of transparency. We don't know really what's happening in the black box, all that stuff. And, and, and that's real. And th- this is not going to be a satisfying answer. There's no shortcut, but people, the people, right, becoming more responsible, and that's a hard job to become more responsible and more responsible, not in general, but more responsible to each other. You know, I think another piece of what's happening is there are more voices being heard by more people than ever before, too. And it's true without the Internet and without that, it seemed much more together. But, you know, the 1950s wasn't fantastic either for a lot of people. And so how do we Remember, it's 50, like I say, 5149. It's, it's, it's 5149 for the better. That's the arc. You can reverse it and we can go back to 1400. Which, by the way, from the stemic global universal perspective would be bad for us, but we have no idea whether it might actually be better for the human drama. That we don't know. We don't like to think that way. But that's also the humility of recognizing, and baby boomers have a particular problem in this, is transformation, transformation, transformation. Tra- it's very nice, but, but people don't transform. People eat and they shit and they love and they hate. And that's what people do. And in the end, I don't care if it's the technology of Torah or the technology of mass. In the end, the technology is as good as the people. 
And that's a piece of it. You know, we now do cognitive augmentation. We do physical augmentation. We're getting that we're making people better and better and better at more and more things. That's fantastic. But we also need to make better people. Because we're making people better, mostly in terms of the market, in terms of their utility value. We can learn Spanish faster, how to do certain tasks. But the more we think of people in terms of their utility value, the less sense we have of our intrinsic value, our essential value as sweet living beings. And part of that is then witnessing from the new space. A lot of us are doing this in this way. So Team Human is saying, let's witness from this community, which is emergent, right? The community is never fixed, the Team Human community, right? Even you can write a book, but it doesn't matter because it gets, it gets released, uh, you know, number one, two, three you know, on Medium or, or every single one of these conversations produces a new listener, new list, new, me- new people who feel, I hate that word network, feel part of and connected in some way to this emergent community. Well, dealing with emergence is not so easy. Some of us are not even good getting instructions to put the bike together. But imagine emergence. So this is an emergent moment. And that means we have to be able to tolerate the ambiguity and the, and the uncertainty. And the only way to do that is together. You know, there is no way you can't do it on your own. But it's together. And this is my problem with all religions, even where they took Judaism, because it, it's together. But in the real sense, it's in the desert between Egypt and Canaan. That's where we really are. We don't get there. That's, that's where we always are. I know. The Torah, the first five and holiest books of the Bible, it ends before we get to Canaan and all those stories happen. You're just in there, in between. Moses doesn't even get to go to Canaan. And that's a way of understanding human existence, as there, in the confused place between whatever and whatever. But no matter how many safeguards we put into almost any religion, and the Jews, they sure darn tried, people still go, no, 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 no. We were created by this, and we're definitely going there. So you got God making you on one end, and Moshiach there in the future. God made us, then Christ, and then we're going to rise from the dry bones, and everything's going to be great, inevitably, no matter what. And there's all of this certainty. I mean, scratch a Jew, and you're going to find out... uh, are, are you one of this kind or one of that kind? And then I think, well, what does religion matter if at least half the people take the opposite meaning of what the religion was intending to convey? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, look, that's any human system is going to have the flaws of being human. So the system is both designed to move us along and stop us from moving along. That's what all systems do, right? I mean, the, and, I, and I guess we need them. We need the people who are sticking their heels in the ground. Absolutely. But the problem is, the, I would say the challenge is we need everybody but the challenge is for those people who are lucky and fortunate and who have enough providence and gift and margins to know we need everybody, you have to be truthful about that. If you need everybody, you got to figure the partial truth about the people you fucking hate, right? And if you're not willing to do that, then you're not, you don't really believe that we're in it together. Now, I'm okay. You don't believe we're in it together, but just don't say that we're in it together and then don't act. It's really hard to be in it together, right? What together means is very hard. In it together means with Trumpy anti-tax red state QAnons. 
Correct. And I got in so much trouble for saying this, but in a sense, the QAnon mythology is correct. (laughs) We are getting shafted and infantilized by neoliberal elites posing as parental figures, people who are supposed to be taking care of us, but they're not. And they, they give us a handout to keep us quiet. So it's as if we are under the control of a cabal of abusive pederasts. Exactly. It just it happens to be the story they tell. We're, you know, it's so crazy. We postmoderns, postliberal, post-toasties, we who like know all this stuff. People back there, we make we think they're literal. When they say somebody is screwing somebody in the ass in, in a pizza, they don't mean that any more than virgin births. Right? They don't mean that any more than split seas. These this is deep metaphor. That's what conspiracy kind of is. To breathing together. They're trying to breathe together. But it's hard to breathe together when you have, and this is, to, you know, when you feel choked. So, of course, the, it's not the issue of the particular story. It's the psychological, emotional, it's the affect of the story and where that's coming from. 1% curiosity, 2% compassion, 3% trying to understand or say, no, here's where we are. We're going to have to wipe them out. There'll be a cost to pay to wipe them out because there's always a consequence of doing, of transgression, but some transgressions are necessary to move forward. But what you're not allowed to do is to both say, I'm a deep pluralist and I'm like, we're all together and we're all interdependent, et cetera, et cetera. And then not care about millions of people who feel the system's rigged and it is rigged for them. It's rigged for me, (laughs) right? So that's the hard part because it's looking in the mirror and saying, how have I contributed to the whole system? Anyway, it could be this. doesn't mean I'm not as powerful as Jeff Bezos. I'm not as powerful as Mark Zuckerberg. But I'm not unimplicated in the way the society is. Right. And even if it's not in direct action in the way you spend your money or build your home, it's in the way you think. You hear a person who has an idea you think is revolting or repulsive and you contract. Correct. And that's enough because on the etheric plane, your little organism has gone and closed up like a little pill bug. That is so right. This, this is exactly what every God character in the Western tradition needed to learn, right? God characters repulsed by the very characters he creates. That God lashes out, whether it's, whether it's banishing, whether it's murdering, whether it's killing. And that God needs to internalize that which God dissociates. And as, as the God character does that, and this is, and now then you get to Freud, and Freud's saying, okay, forget about that. It's the inside, right? And we, the things that repulse us have less to do with the person who's repulsive, right? And more to do with us. Otherwise, it wouldn't hit. Now, that doesn't mean sometimes the projection is so real, you've got to kill the projection before it kills you, right? But then you have to remember, when you kill the projection, meaning the person, you have not killed the idea. You've killed that person. The projection is still there, and it will manifest, or I hate that word, it, it will embody itself somewhere else. Oh, and that's what everyone found out, I mean, about trying to kill the Jews. It's like, first, you know, Pharaoh kills them. It's like, because we're insects, whatever, the Jewish race. He goes, it's a race. We're going to kill all those ones. Then who, the Inquisition? And they try killing them. They go, oh, no, no. So they, <laughs> we all tried to convert, right? We all became Catholic. And they're like, oh, well, it's not that. It's their blood, 
right? It's their blood. So kill them anyway. Then you get all the way to Hitler and you get Jung's ideas. And he's like, oh, well, it doesn't even, it's a morphogenetic (laughs) field. It's a, it's a genetic memory. So it's like, it will always, you're right. It will always come back. You can kill every last human and the hologram of the belief system will emerge again. That's beautiful language. The hologram of the belief system, which is the hologram of complexity and our own internal complexity, right? I mean, sort of Western tradition, love your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul. What the fuck does that mean? How would you know that you loved with all your heart, with all your soul? With all... Just tell me, how would you know? The second you thought you were doing that, right? you would know there's more. And that's the same with feeling loved right? With all someone's heart, with all someone's might. So living with the desire to be all in, right? On feeling loved and and being able to love by definition creates a psychic abyss. It creates a, a psychic space. And are we interested in trying to journey together that space? That's the, I, I don't call it, a, I call it a maze of grace, right? Right? Not amazing grace, but it's a Maze of grace. And I don't want to give up on the desire, right? I don't want to give up on, on wow, do I really love my children with all my heart, with all my, I, I think so, but like, whoa, <laughs> you know? And do I really love my wife with all my heart, with all, well, I think so, but it's amazing if I, considering how much I hurt her. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> right? Right? So, and do I feel yeah. loved? What would it take for me to know that? Uh, right. Well, of course, I can't know it 100. I mean, that's the binding of Isaac, right? You can't know it 100%, but you can taste it every so often, right? And a taste that moves us in the trajectory just a little bit more, right? Right. And then the trick is sometimes you taste it. And then you get addicted to that taste. Correct. And then you spend your life looking for the taste rather than seeing that taste as the fuel Correct. and impetus to go live go live your friggin' life. You don't want to get on that little mountaintop every day. You're kind of oh, preaching a kind of a of a, a tolerance, acceptance, and recognition of all the other kinds of people that there are and all. And it brings me to the thing, but maybe a lot of people are 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 ticked off about this 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 section in Torah that I'll make you defend. Not not defend, but you know there are these these bad people, the Amalekites in there. And you're supposed to like if you see them, you just kill them. Every single one. Kill their dogs, kill their gerbils, you know, you just wreck them. As if as if they're saying that there are these people that are just truly, like Hillary would say, true deplorables. <laughs> yeah, here's the thing. The truthful part of this is something happens around us that disrupts our meaning system and our order of things, or that does real violence and hurts us at a deep, deep level. And the truth is you want to fucking kill them and wipe them out. And if you don't right. own that feeling... If you think you're above that impulse, that's when you get in trouble. So the same tradition that says, right, right, don't forget, wipe out. Now, of course, don't forget, wipe out. How can you wipe out? You'll forget if you wipe out. So that's the. (laughs) And the other thing is, it says, who did uh, who did the Amalekites hit? They hit the stragglers of the people. They hit the young of the of the as the group is marching, and um, there are many traditions that say. You produced the Amalekites by having stragglers in your community. 
You create vulnerability that allows exploitation to happen. Right. You got slave people, whatever, trailing behind your thing, the prostitutes and the whoever. It's like you're creating the conditions for evil. Right. And so uh, then you have both sides then. You have, of course, because it's very painful to know we have create some of the conditions that allow evil to happen. That's a very painful thing yeah. to know. It's a lot easier to disassociate from that feeling and make the other the container of all the evil. Right. And that's the challenge. That's the challenge. Which, of course, the irony is, who is Amalek? Amalek is Esau's, right, grandson. So the uh, rejected brother produces quotation marks, the embodiment of evil. Right. And for people who don't know, it was Jacob. So there are these two brothers who are sons of, of Isaac. And there's a little one, Jacob, who's like the father of all the Jews. And there's this other one, this older one, Esau. And Esau's supposed to get the blessing from his father. But Jacob and his mom go, you know, wouldn't it be good for you to have the blessing? And Jacob's like, yeah. So they put like fur on his arms so he looks old and has like, you know, furry arms like his brother. And he steals his brother's blessing. And then his brother becomes the parent, the forefather of all these bad people. And it's like, uh, excuse me. Right. So those are very, I mean, considering that's a 7th, 6th century BC text, I would say that was psychologically right. pretty alert. They figured now, something you out. you don't like that. Right. I don't like it. <laughs> you don't it. like to hear that right. part. And it's not the part we teach in, forget about Hebrew school, we don't teach it to adults, right. right? We don't teach that the first time the phrase slaves to Pharaoh the first time that appears in one of the meta stories of, of Western civilization, the Exodus, the first time it appears is because Joseph's, the Israelites' policy produces Egyptian slaves to the Pharaoh, right? So that's the first time that phrase appears. That means every time we're at a Passover Seder with a great technology called the Passover Seder, it's a great technology for evolution. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm for it. Every time we say, we were, right, we were slaves to Pharaoh, <laughs> yeah. we were slaves to Pharaoh, right? Every time we say that, if you just have read the text, yeah. okay, you know, oh shit, I was actually the first people, we were the first people to create slaves to Pharaoh. Yikes. <laughs> and that humbles or at least invites the complexity of what it means to be human beings journeying together. But it's like, I wonder if it turns out that I'm one of the characters in a future Bible, Right. what story would I want them to be telling about me? You know, what are the fights I'm having with God? What, how could I live a life that I'd be proud for them to read? My struggles too, my faults too, I fell this way, but boy... That puts a different lens on well, things. That's, that's a phenomenal. That, I mean, that that I say it this way: What would it be like to imagine that our story was worthy of being chanted? Huh, yeah, right. What would it be like? And 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 not not to get it all right, because I mean, if anyone gets it all wrong, it's mostly the characters in in, in scripture. So they mostly get it wrong. So so it's not about getting it right all the time, but it's living with at least as much attention as we can and with as much intention as we can. And that's really hard. And a lot of things get in the way. You know, it used to be illness really got in the way before 30 years old, right? People died. Now, I'd much rather have Facebook get in the way of my attention, right, than disease and violence and war and, you know, a little infection that killed my child at one or mothers, one-third of whom all died in childbirth, right? That stuff... 
that didn't allow us to have a lot of attention and intention. It was like getting through. So I'd much rather have the problem of this external technology, right? Saying, you know what? It's manipulating me a touch here. I wonder if I should look at some other news feeds. Uh-huh. You know? Right. Well, that's easy. Other news feeds is, is a much better problem to have than one third of all people dying in childbirth. I know, but it's also a better problem than two thirds of all people dying in the fires of 2040. Correct. You know, And I have a really hard time. I always now, since they came up with that date last week, 2040 is when all the shit really just hits the fan and everything just, spite, we all spontaneously combust. Um, <laughs> I think about, okay, so my daughter will be 35. And I think, well, 35, I got a lot done by 35. I'd rather her live 35 interesting years than not have lived at all. And I start playing that that sad game. And you've got an 18-month-old who will be, you know, 19 or whatever. How do we move forward optimistically, 51% optimistically, when there's so much hardship ahead when 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 people don't want to listen when they're still going to stream their friggin netflix and not just wake up by knowing our sphere of influence i'm like convinced on this over the last few years i'm convinced that when we quotation marks the 25 percent of cultural creatives all the words that they use right who've had a little therapy who don't worry about meals that when we despair right it is an absolute escape from our own responsibility. And so the only answer then is you have to have friendships that when you're down, they pick you up. When you're up, they pick you, they, they remind you because that's the cycle in a moment of paradigm shift. Everyone's being unnerved, including the most culturally creative and psychologically aware people. So you have to have friendships and you have to be a billionth of a percentage point more responsible using a billionth of a percentage point more agency today than we did yesterday. And that's the practice. Because when we use our agency a bit more, we actually undermine the despair and sphere of influence. It's really to know one's sphere of influence, right? If you over-dramatize your sphere of influence, you will also get depressed and paralyzed by the complexity. If you undermine your sphere of influence... You will also feel depressed because you're not bringing all of who you are to the table of what the planet or the cosmos needs from you or what your family needs from you or what your company needs from you. That's really big. Get up When we get up every morning and if it turns out we're down, call a friend. And don't text the friend. Call a friend, right? And we need enough. We don't need, need 5,000 friends for that, okay? Right. We need three, four, five. I'll even go as high as a minion, ten, nine others, but you don't really. Right. And actually use one's agency in one's sphere of influence. I can't control Exxon, but I could make a decision about where my portfolio is going. That I could. I could make a little decision that way, right? Or I can, whatever it is, it may be that environment is too big for me to worry about and other people, then I'll, you know what I have to worry about? is producing an amazing grandchild. Right. And the interesting thing when you're talking about the sort of the interhuman possibilities here that, you know, that you're here for someone else, someone else is here for you, you just call the person. It's like, if you don't know what to do actively yourself, being available to the other who is going through the crisis is is the entry. That's the, the, the portal right there. It's huge. It's huge, right? I mean, to be able to, 
I mean, part of it is helper, helpy. This right. is, you know, Ram Dass's great insight. Yeah. Helper, helpy. There's, there's no helper without the helpy. So if you're a helper, right, the only reason you can play out who you are is because there's people that need yep. to be helped. And it's so funny. I was just saying that to, uh, you know, Sarah Pesson, the uh, religion scholar in, in yeah, Denver. Sure, sure. Just saying to her He's yesterday, great. we were talking about Ram Dass on, uh, for this show. And I was like, you know, I think the thing that made Ram Dass so special was not that he was so wise, but that he just listened to the wisdom in you. He looked at you like you were the friggin' Buddha. He looked at you and it was just like, and that... That's transformative. And of course, you see him as the Buddha. If he's looking at you as a Buddha, there's no way. You're just like, that's what a wise person looks like. A wise person looks like the Dalai Lama. Little innocent babies staring at you like you're God. I have a great Dalai Lama story because of that. I mean, that, that changed my life, this story. I had this opportunity a few years back to introduce the Dalai Lama. They were, they, I don't know, they were, uh, uh, there was like a... a, a, a the Shambhala lineage was dedicating a space in, in northern Colorado, uh, a, a stupa, and it was the largest stupa in North America. And it's just, I was very, very fortunate. I got to introduce the Dalai Lama in this beautiful, where no Jews have ever gone before, northern Colorado. And it's a uh, beautiful blue sky. And it's that. And interesting thing is, though, I got to be, after introducing him, he did his thing. I got to go into the stupa with him and two other people. That was sort of the perk, yeah. so to speak, right, to go into the stupa. And I asked him, a question about like I there's gonna be a lot of loss and like you know I worry that I'm on the positive side of this and I metabolize loss but I I wonder if I'm lying to people because it's like the level of loss that's going to be coming culturally right I mean it's very significant in this turbulent period he looks at me right as if right I mean as if I he had prepared for the question and he goes to his interpreter bring me a bowl the interpreter brings him a bowl. He goes, what's the most, in, what's the most important part of this bowl? You know, he told it with a very high voice. And like, I thought it was rhetorical. I wouldn't answer because I didn't want to sound stupid. He goes, the empty space is what makes it a bowl. No empty space, no bowl. There'll be loss <laughs> and gain. And he goes, loss and gain, loss and gain, loss and gain. And I literally... It was like the piece of Torah I needed for my life. Whenever I'm feeling gain, 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 the whole thing's fucking great, everything's amazing. Loss and gain. Whenever I'm down, 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 because I have range on that, right? Oh, loss and gain. Loss and gain. That's dealing. Yeah. Well, that's why he's the Dalai Lama and, you know, I'm on Team Human, yeah. but he's a Dalai Lama. He's a Dalai Lama. <laughs> he could remember all his lifetimes and stuff. That's the party line. That's why we justify, yeah. you know. Well, that's a humble thing. In other words, if you know you don't have to if you know you don't have to accomplish it all, right? You know, you're going to be. There's a great tradition. You're going to be asked four questions at sort of the end of time, and this is true for those of us who've been privileged to be on deathbeds with people. The sort of questions that you're going to be, you're just going to be asked four questions. One. Were you basically honest in your transactional life? Because to think all of life is transformational is bullshitting around. There's a lot of just transactions. But you can be an asshole in your transactions. You can be exploitative in your transactions. Or you can be basically honest right. in your transactions. That's like question question one, two. Did you, may, did you have any intimate relationships? 
Did you have any, not, not really the greatest person in the history of the world, did you have some intimate relationships where you really were vulnerable and the other person was vulnerable, you tried the best you can, and you can say, yeah, I did have a few really intimate relationships. Three, did you create any kind of path for yourself? Or did you go through life so, so unaware that even if you got the wrong path, but at least I had a path, I tried, I tried to make time for pathing, you know? And the fourth is, you're fundamentally hopeful. You're fundamentally hopeful. Now, that seems to be a good, like, that's not getting out of control. It's not what, how, did you eat kosher or yeah. not? Did you, did you, did you solve the environmental crisis? Did you solve the problem of, 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 of loneliness and hunger in the world? No, like, were you an asshole in business, right? Yes or no? Did you basic have intimacy as best as you can? Did you create some time to think about who you are and the path you're taking and were you fundamentally hopeful? You know, by the way, if Zuckerberg would ask himself those four questions, Facebook would be 20% better. Yeah. And I don't mean to pick on him. It's just, it, 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 it's doing great damage, we know, you know, and, and, and that's the larger thing. Those of us, we, we have to be responsible, you know. You can't complain about something and then use it all the time. You know, that's bad faith. Right. And when I talk to people about that, and I get it, they always say, well, you know, for my business, I need it, and da-da-da, or... Okay. Okay. I'm okay with it, but then I I only care about the bad faith part. Right. I'm okay. People can only be what they can be. That's why we have Yom Kippur. That's that's why we have Easter. We have these times that that allow us to say, I did the best I could. Am I still forgiven, even though I'm going to do the same thing between now and next year? Yes, you're forgiven. Go on. Be, be a billionth of a percentage better. I'm okay. I'm okay with it. It's bad faith to be a critic, right, and not take any responsibility. That's the bad faith. You are hopeful and you want to be hopeful. I mean, so you're, you have a practice, basically. Hope is a practice for you. Hope is a practice. Absolutely. It's, a, it's like gratitude. These are practices. It's not like poof hope, right? You have to learn how to read, right? Well, you have to learn how to have hope. You have to learn what it tastes like. Hope Hope tastes like something. It's not a pre-existing state. No, it's like I'm watching my 18-month-old, who's my my daughter is the most beautiful thing about grandparent. Yes, the granddaughter, but watching my grand watching my daughter parent at a much higher level than I can. <laughs> right? Not a, not higher level, I've, not higher level than her mother. Her mother did a right. very good job, but 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 really higher level even than me and Dana because just more aware and and and. But I watch the baby, I watch the kids in the playground now, and they go in the sandbox. And I say, oh my God, it's like the exact same thing. It's like even an 18-month-old, you just have to like teach two things. Can you use your words as opposed to like grab? Just, I know you want it. Everybody wants everything. So don't grab. Use your words, right? Use your words. And can you share? Those are the only two rules... Use your words, <laughs> right? Like that. By the way, that's the same for everybody. Every biblical story. Just Cain and Abel could. I know you didn't feel good. It felt bad. It felt bad that like Abel's was sacrifice was accepted and yours wasn't. I get it. I get it. it feels terrible. It's unfair. It's bullshitting around. God's a fucker. I get it. But use your words, right? Instead <laughs> of a rock. <laughs> Instead of a clock. <laughs> But it's true for an 18-month-old. And, and it's not that she's bad. There's no bad or good for an 18-month-old. It turns out we're, this is, we're hardwired for wanting what's around us. We're hardwired for feeling a touch scarcity. We're hardwired to, okay, but 
many of us now have enough abundance for the first time in human history that we have to work hard to change the hard wiring. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to do it. You can't think about doing it. You have to do it. And the do it changes the synapses. It's not the synapses changing the doing. The sorts of people who say the things we say and who think the thoughts we do, the sort of um, to make a bucket out of us, you know, soft and squishy, neither here nor there, universal justice, uh, river reed people versus oak tree people are always imperiled. We're, we're often considered dangerous to the powers that be. We challenge, you know, we challenge a, a, a dogma. We challenge a, a creed. Right. Creed and all. And so they know, the authorities know that we are the population to keep in check when you want to dominate some people, when you want to be bad. We're, we're the ones that, they, that they, they get. It's a really tricky, it's a tricky place to be. And I feel like, you know, right now, it's especially tricky because I feel like I'm living on a razor's edge between very stiff, MAGA, conservative, angry people on one side and highly particularized intersectionalist social justice warriors on the other, all of whom mean well. And I feel so guilty that I sound like Trump by saying there's very good people on both sides. I got it. But I'm sorry, <laughs> there are, there are, there of there, there, right. there may be more on the social justice warrior side, nice ones than on the other. But Correct. it's so hard to navigate this place between the two. And I always used to think, well, ah, the Jews should have sided with the Browns instead of the Whites. That was our mistake. Going with the Christians and the Inquisition, we should have gone with the Moors. It would have been fine. And now we'd be on the good side. So we'd be on the AOC side completely. But I feel like sort of the AOC side kind of hates us because they see us as nationalists. And the, the Trump side hates us because they see us as like immigrant liberals bringing the Mexicans up. So it's like, it's so hard to maintain this state because it, it feels homeless. It feels groundless. It feels uncertain. It's always, and it's what you got to do, but it's, it's alive. It's, but this is what it actually means to be a spiritual person, right? What it means to be a psycho-spiritual person is that you are never at home, capital H. Right. At most, you get a, you know, the Sabbath is to time like the land is to space. Right? You get, once every seven days, you get a fantasy of home. Right. It's not even home. I know. It's not even home. It's not. But okay, but a little fantasy is important too of home and you make believe and you, you know, you do all the things you make believe, whatever the practice is that people have for their Sabbaths. I'm okay with it. And in the make believe moment, you say, oh, this, it could be like this, even though I know it can't and even though I'm making it up. And then you get back on the horse on Sunday or Monday or Tuesday. So it's, 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 that is what it means. I'd say one thing is that our job, if we're really sort of truthful about this space, is to be able to hold together, right, in our own awareness and consciousness, some sort of curiosity about the extremes. Maybe not respect, but curiosity about the extremes. And I would say we have not done a phenomenal job about that, okay? Because it doesn't mean our state is superior. Because our state is not a fixed state. It's a moving state. 
And we also don't want to be in a moving state. We also would like to fix ourselves and anchor ourselves. And it's fantastic to anchor ourselves in the drama as the most evolved. What a phenomenal place to anchor oneself. We are the most evolved. <laughs> now, we may or may not be, okay? But it's a phenomenal place to put your stake in the ground. Yeah. So I would say that those of us who are feeling, as we all are, how do you navigate this space? We have something profoundly in common with both extremes. Because they're the expression of the rage, the, the certainty on both sides. That is a response to really not knowing how to navigate this. And that should make us very compassionate to the extremes. We also feel that, that we happen to be able to anchor ourselves to something we think is more evolved is our particular hubris. Even if it is more evolved, it's our particular hubris. Right. And it's a different kind of stability. It's more of a gyroscopic sort of stability Correct. in air rather right. than anchor to the, to right. the ground. It's not terra firma. Right. Team human is the terra firma. Right. It's not a firma firma. It's not a terra terra. <laughs> it's, it's team human, right? And I mean more than even, yeah. you know, your community, right? But team human is the terra firma in the next era. And that's new for us because team human is immeasurably more fluid than a temple in Jerusalem or a Vatican in Rome or a capital in Washington, D.C. or a national expression called the United States of America, even though all those, I'm, in, I'm into everything, so I'm okay. But Team Human is a much more dynamic yeah. anchor. It is. It is. And, you know, I remember as a little kid, they used to sing this song. Was it? I'm Israel High. Right? And it's like, oh, Israel's. I was like, oh, Israel's that place. It's like, no, 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 no. Israel's this people. You know? And that's sort of what they're going for, that it's this nebulous blob of people. I mean, it doesn't. And high is alive. Right. High is active. Right. It's, 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 it's not alive. It's aliving. Right. <laughs> right. The people who wrestles with the way things ought to be, right, is ongoingly alive, right? And that, by the way, for, the, for, for Jews, is a very big moment because it's not, the boundaries are not going to be, they're not going to strictly be ethnic boundaries. You're going to have a lot of people, quotation marks, are not Jews who are going to experience themselves as people who wrestle with the way things ought to be or the gap between the way things are ought to be, because they're doing it, and they're doing it real, and we have a lot to learn from them, and we're, we're in a different Israel. There's a different Israel that is bigger than the way we've conceptualized and I, you know, and I have to even be careful here. Yeah, no, it's because we're, we're you know, we're particular people who came to this understanding of reality through a particular path, but... The, the organism is way bigger than, <laughs> than uh, yeah, the, right. the Israeli right. people. The particular path is a profoundly interesting resting spot, right? And you know, if a resting spot is different than a stopping, you know, resting spot is different than, you know, you're not, you know, that's a great tradition. You're not allowed to have peace in this lifetime. You're allowed to have serenity, but not peace, right? And peace, shalom, wholeness. You're not allowed because it can't be. So how do you have just enough serenity to keep the drama moving, knowing full well that the aspiration is the wholeness, the aspiration. But you're one piece of the organism. You're one organ in the organism. You're not even an, or an organ in the organ. That's already a high level, right? 
you're a you're a molecule. You're an you're not even an atom. Not you're not even a bit. You know, it's like on the other hand, it's like the tradition. You know, this tradition teaches them the one having one pocket of dust and ashes. I mean, in the context of two hundred fifty thousand years, what's a Homo sapien? Thirteen point seven years. What are we? We're not we're not an accounting error of an accounting error of an accounting error of accounting error of reality. And in the other pocket, for me, this whole world was created. And the questions you have to have, that's a practice. Put that on a piece of paper in each pocket, right? One pocket, I'm dust and ashes. The other pocket, the whole world was created for me. How do you know which pocket, which piece of paper in which pocket to look at when? That's the problem. But both are true. If we cannot create the enabling conditions, our, the families, our own children, our grandchildren, to do as best they can to feel, gosh, I'm nothing. Wow, this whole thing is for me. You know, that's the drama. That's the drama. And people who feel they're only nothing, you know what happens? That's the insurrection on January 6th. If you really feel you're only nothing, if you really feel, if you really feel you're only nothing, you think all Palestinians should be killed. If you really think you're only nothing, you actually think you're 100% right. But if you, you know, if you think the whole world is for me, and you don't ever sometimes think that if you're nothing, you do a lot of damage. You do a lot of damage. Because, of course, they're the exact same positions. Separate those positions are the exact same mirror images, right? Held together, that is the definition of team human. And then the trick is to be able to move between those states without it being depression and, depression and hubris, but just wonder. Wonder. Oh, my God. That's talking about a virtue we need. <laughs> I know. That's a virtue we need. Wonder. Wonder. It's like Great people virtue. in a state of wonder, I promise, they're never mean. They're <laughs> they rarely kill other people. I know. It's like, it's cool. <laughs> Tell me a time in the world when there wasn't more to be. I mean, I mean, in all honesty, I understand there's a lot of horror, too. I get that. But, I mean, there's a hell of a lot. To wonder, I, I once heard Ray Kurzweil speak, and I've heard him a lot of times. One of the times I hear him speak, and he does this whole like with singularity and this and that and this and that. And, and someone, and it was like 400 people in the crowd. And, and this person who I know, I knew the person, was sort of a more religiously traditional person, was sort of outraged by, by, by Kurzweil. And he says to him, he says to him, do, do you think God exists in a billionth of a second? Kurzweil goes... Not yet. <laughs> yeah, these emergence guys, they're... they're uh, Not right. yet. Could you imagine if we all... If I said, does Erwin exist yet? Does Erwin exist? Not yet. yet. Does Douglas exist? Mm, not yet. He's, in, he's you know, incipient. Er, er maybe exists, but not... Or Erwin. <laughs> but Erwin doesn't exist yet. It's emergent, <laughs> Right. Where and that, like imagine that 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 is both yeah this incredible opportunity responsibility, right? And wow, it's humbling because like I thought I existed. <laughs> yeah, it'll come. You'll get there. <laughs> You'll make it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know. Oh my God! It's like it's like you look in the mirror and you go like a like a spiritual or ethical MRI and you go ugh, <laughs> and then you go perfect, perfect. And then you go, I could do better. I like that. I'm just my I'm just a prototype <laughs> for me. Right. You're iterating. We talk about right yeah. the innovation community, iterate, 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 iterate. Well, the biggest iterations are ourselves. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you wake up each morning. It is Groundhog's Day, right? Well, I mean, actually, every single religious tradition, right, wisdom tradition, you wake up, renew. Now, for most human history, people actually thought you died in some way mm. when you were asleep. So you literally woke, woke up to new life. Now we know that, you know, it doesn't work out. That It's not that way. You're still alive. But coming to consciousness, or what does it mean? You know, what is a dream? Again, is which is real, which is not. And so to wake up each day to wake up, wake up, right? These are real things. This is where these traditions got it right. Turns out the metaphysics was wrong, is wrong. Yeah, but the heart's right. Heart's right. And the intuition, the intuition is right. We need the caution of traditionalists and, and sort of the transgressive nature of the futurists. We need them. But the thing is, you don't want traditionalists or futurists running the world, right? A world with no transgression, we're in trouble too. You know. Yeah, and that's the problem. And right now, we're still wrestling with digital, which seems to favor one side or the other and really doesn't work so right. well for those of us trying to... When it's so either a one or a zero, it's hard to be in the place between. That's touch too narrow of a choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the third option, baby. None of the yeah, above. I want a third option. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, this is, I think, what we're, a lot of people, I mean, there's the hopeful, like, like you, my God, you should be incredibly hopeful. You talk to people every single week. I mean, I listen, mo most weeks I listen. So, uh, like, every single person you speak to is fundamentally at the core hopeful, even if they're having a down day when they talk to you. They're fundamentally hopeful, every single person. Every single person is doing something interesting. Well, how do, how do they get up in the morning if you're not going to do something, you know? And, you know, and there are people, I've, I've, I've spoken with a few people who are not, and usually their episode doesn't make it on. Because usually you can feel it's oh, like... so interesting. You know, it's like, you know, they're, they're really just complaining. They're just, and if it's just there, it's like, well, okay, what are we going to get from that? And it's not that, that the people on, I've had people on over climate change and economic, dis, you know, the worst of the worst has yeah, been talked about disasters. here. Yeah, right, right. But still, you know, and that's the thing. That's why the facts, the content to me matters so little. It's the comportment. It's the, how are you passing through? That's everything. Yeah, that's beautiful. How the comport, I love that word. It's how we're passing through, right? Because that's all it is every day. <laughs> yeah. And again, we don't have to we don't have to make it more than it no. is too. Again, that's why I use the, the rhetoric of fifty one forty nine, you know, to just be a touch a, just a touch touch better than yesterday. Yeah. Just a touch. It could be, you know, it, it's again and, and our own spheres our own spheres of influence. Yeah. But our spheres of influence are pretty important. The ripples, ah, ripples make a difference. Ripples are everything. And that's when you realize that your ownership and authority over your ideas and all this stuff, it's like, oh, please. I got my idea from a right. piece of graffiti on the side of the road that I don't remember seeing, you know? Yeah, it's not, right. I don't own any of it. But I own, I own my friendship with you, Erwin, and we don't talk yeah. enough. Oh my God. But, uh, I know. We will. But you know, you have a place in my heart from, I mean, I, I, you're one of the people that was, has been, was, still not, but was at one of the most important moments of my life. And a long time ago already, more than 20 years yeah. ago, so critical in my development. I can't tell you. And, and, and I adore you and, and Teen Human, it's such a privilege and an honor to be a part of it. Aww, and, you, and you and mine, you and mine for sure. I'm honored to, uh, to know you. Thank you. 
Thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Rabbi Erwin Kula, co-president of Klal. You can find out more about him at klal.org or on teamhuman.fm, where you can find out about all of our guests and become a patron of the show. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaptelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skide trætte af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakker.